All right, team. Welcome back to the Man Talk Show, or welcome for the very first time. I am Connor Beaton. This is a, a unique episode. A few months back, some sometime in last year, my wonderful podcast producer, Mr. Aaron Durand, decided that we should do an experts show every once in a while, where we pull together a variety of guests, four, five, six guests that we've had on the show, and we take segments from their episodes. Because let's be honest, you might not have a chance to listen to each and every single episode that I put out. And so we wanted to provide you with some of the really insightful, depth-oriented, meaningful parts of the conversations that I've had with some of the past guests and condense them under one theme. Not to mention that these are the types of episodes that you might want to man it forward and share with somebody in your life to give them insight into what the podcast is all about. So let me tell you about this one because this is a solid, solid lineup. In this episode, we have Mr. James Hollis on how the landscape of male culture has changed in his lifetime. James Hollis is one of the world-leading renowned Jungian psychologists who I had on the show last year. Owen Marcus, who is the lead facilitator for every man, uh, talking about emotional intelligence within men and, and within the masculine psyche. Ben Goreski of The Evolved Masculine, talking about what modern men seem to be facing within our current culture and our current time. Mr. John Wineland, who's been on the show a couple of times on the integrated masculine and embodiment and what that means. And finally, one of my all-time favorites, who I really hope to have back on the show soon, Mr. Francis Weller, on how men can nourish future generations. So this is a wonderful podcast to dig into. There's many different perspectives on you know, men, past, current, and future, or masculinity, past, present, and future. Uh, so I hope that you really enjoy this episode. Don't forget to man it forward, share it with somebody. Leave us a rating and review. If you have 30 seconds today, it goes a long way to help rank on the charts. And by the way, on that note, we are top 100 in both Canada and the US, oftentimes top 50 in Canada for relationships. So thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every single one of you that share this show. Without any further delay, please enjoy the experts on masculinity and men. I read your book a number of years ago and revisited it recently under, uh, under Saturn's Shadow. Mm -hmm. I think you wrote it back in 94. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of curious to get your take on how the landscape of male culture has changed since you wrote it and what has sort of stayed the same, what's changed and what you perceive to be the work of men within our modern culture right, right now. Well, there's several large questions there. I would say, first of all, most men are adrift, horribly isolated. When that book came out, I was deeply touched to get letters from literally around the world, the Australian outback. It's like, how does the book get that far? <laughs> and uh, people saying, you know, I always thought there was something wrong with me because I had these issues or I had those kinds of experiences in my life. And I realized, well, but that's normal and natural and uh, other men have them. And then you begin to realize, if you don't know that by now, look what isolation you've been living in. Mm. One of the capacities that women have is the ability to share, often share painful feelings, feelings of failure and inadequacy with their friends. Men learn in childhood not to go there because you wind up being put down, shamed, ridiculed. So you learn early, shut it down inside. 
When I returned from Zurich in the 1980s, early 80s, I think I had probably nine women to one man in my practice. Today, it's the reverse. I have nine men to, to one woman. And there are two reasons for that. One, it's more acceptable for men to address these questions and to solicit some kind of conversation with another person around them than it was a number of decades ago. And, and secondly, I think men are even in more trouble even more adrift than they were. And so the work with men that I do today is very, very moving because the first task is really confession. That is to say, this is what I'm really experiencing. This is what I'm really feeling. And you know, the irony is a lot of men have trouble getting to that. A colleague of mine in San Francisco said once, usually women walk in the office the first hour pretty clearly able to articulate what's going on for them. He said it often takes a man a year to get to that point. And so the first need is to be honest with yourself, as simplistic as that sounds. This is what I really am experiencing. And, you know, maybe with all of my accomplishments, uh, a deep sense of inadequacy or failure or isolation or confusion or whatever it is. It's not going to be pretty, that's for sure. But then, you know, you're carrying it anyhow. So it's kind of like having a splinter under your skin. You can say, well, since I can't see it today, I'm going to ignore it. Well, it's doing its work underground, you know, and sooner or later is going to pathologize in a way that you will regret. And so the, the first thing for men is to actually learn to be a bit more honest with themselves. And then if at all possible, to share some of that with another man. Men sometimes are willing to share it with women, but, and women will often say, uh, what can I do to help? Or, or let, me, let me suggest this or that to you. And what a man most needs, I think, is to feel validated in whatever it is he's already experiencing. When I've been asked to talk to women's groups, I generally say, three things about those strange creatures called men. And by the way, I've never been asked by a men's group to talk to them about women. It says something. <laughs> women want to know more about men or what's, what makes them tick. I say, first of all, if you cut away forever your closest friends, the ones you do talk to about your marriage, your body, your worries about your children, what's really happening in your life, those people are gone forever. Secondly, you have to sever your connection to whatever is your guiding source, whether you call it your instinct or your intuition, whatever you call it, that's cut. And thirdly, your worth as a person will be predominantly defined by your meeting external standards of productivity defined by total strangers. And if you should happen to reach today's quota, the goalposts will be moved tomorrow and the day after that. So it's a never-ending cycle of having to prove yourself. Now, when women hear that, they're appalled because they think how horrible that would be, how isolated. And the truth is, it is horrible. Hmm. And yet men have learned, usually in childhood, to just distance yourself from those feelings because you can't afford them. They'll get in the way of your producing today or in tomorrow. And you're going to get shame for sharing them in most cases, all right? And one of the questions I've asked men in therapy is, when do you think you started shutting down inside? 
And I sometimes have to explain what I mean by shutting down when you, you, you just started sort of suppressing. And I can remember some specific incidents in childhood where I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to go there anymore. And I would guess they were around five, six, seven years old in that area. So already the self-denial and self-repression uh, was at work, you see. So, you know, that's, again, so they're rather long answer to your question, but it's a, um, an ongoing problem. And I think more men have, the culture has changed somewhat, at least parts of the country, to allow men to the luxury of a conversation with another man, which is one reason why a man can profit from working with a, a woman therapist if she is in, in good relationship to her own inner masculine, so to speak. But it might be useful to have these conversations with men if he has done his own work too. Mm -hmm. Having gone through the psychoanalytic or Jungian tradition, our, the central piece of our training is our own personal analysis. You know, as Jung said it so succinctly, you can't take a person any further than you've traveled yourself. And that's true for all, all men and women. You can't take your children further than you've traveled. You can't take your relationship further than you've traveled. Where you're stuck, others are going to get stuck around you, you see. So, um, you know, it's an evolving picture. And um, I think another factor here is men need to feel linked to some bigger picture in their life beyond just being productive, even if that's still a normative idea for many men, if not most, why? In service to what? What am I really here for? You see? Mm. I mean, that question has to occur to you. I mean, I think it occurs to us in our 20s, but it's like it all gets buried because you still have so many specific goals out there you have to address. Like get a job, learn to support yourself, being able to pay for dwelling and support a relationship and potentially support children and so forth. But that other question haunts, who am I really, apart from my roles, and why am I here in service to what? Hmm. And it can't be just in service to making more widgets or killing time by playing golf or whatever you do. Nothing wrong with golf, of course. It's this like, why am I here just hanging out till I die? And for a lot of men, that's been the case. You mentioned the word purpose or function or why you're, you know, why we are here. Maybe you didn't use the word purpose exactly, but you sort of asked the question, why we're mm -hmm. here. And I see a lot of men asking that question, you know, what is my purpose? What does purpose even mean? How do I find purpose? And it's, I think culturally it's become a bit of a buzzword. You know, I was talking with the men in our group recently and, you know, it's just sort of sharing that there's something like 250,000 plus books on Amazon that all are about purpose. And so clearly there's a deep question that is constantly and continually emerging within the lives of men and women. But I think for men, especially, it's something that is quite prominent within our minds, within our psyche and within our soul. And so I'm hoping if you can speak just a little bit to the notion of purpose, maybe how you would define it, if there's a different word that you would use, mm -hmm. and what it actually looks like for a man to begin that journey to embark towards, towards his purpose. Yes, I, maybe what we need to do is repurpose purpose here. 
I had plenty of purpose in my first half of life, and I was serving the question that basically life presents all of us in the first half, and I'm using half in a very loose way here, less chronologically than psychologically. And whatever your environment is saying to you, from your family of origin to the neighborhood you live in, the religious and cultural values you were raised with, and and so forth, it's all about can you develop enough ego strength to hold your own, to adapt, to fit in, to be able to function in this society. And it may involve very specific things like skills, like driving and and learning a trade and so forth. And if you're run over with a truck on your 30th birthday or 35th or 40th, even, you might say, well, it was a short life, but he did what he was supposed to do. And that was grow up, function in the world, fit in and so forth. I think another kind of question comes in the second half of life, and it will be triggered for different people in different ways. For some people, it doesn't occur until they're forced into retirement, and they didn't realize how much the job was carrying their sense of self and assignments in life, uh, or a breakup of an important relationship. In my case, obviously, it was the depression. And then you have to ask the question, what is life wanting from me? Or what is the soul wanting? Or in the first half of life, I'm learning what the world wants of me, and I have to sort of meet their demands for good or for ill. But then I have to ask the question, and and what does the soul want of me? Again, that, that deep essence that we carry within each of ourselves, and yet from which we tend to be separated so often. And that's a humbling question. Again, that's a question that leads one back to the drawing board. And when I entered my first hour of therapy, as I mentioned, I wasn't looking to change my life, my career, my geography, anything like that, but I wound up changing everything in the long run. And and at the same time, uh, you get a reward that rises out of that, which is that sense of purpose or that sense of meaning. Meaning is not something we create. It's a byproduct of being in right relationship to your own soul at the moment. That's one of the delusions of happiness. You know, the pursuit of happiness. Well, what does that mean? For many people, it gets transformed to something tangible, like the newest shiny electronic thing, the house on the corner, the new car, the the appropriate partner, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay, but we all know sooner or later, whatever the projection was onto those other, it will not carry the worth and weight of your own soul, not very long. And then you have to fall back into having to live with yourself and maybe other people having to live with you as well. So then then the question comes, if it's not about happiness, what is it about? Well, where you feel that what you're doing is being sustained and rewarded intrapsychically. For example, in my day job, I am a therapist. I work usually eight hours per day or more. And I could have never imagined as a child being present to other people's suffering would have been meaningful to me. I couldn't have imagined. Now, it doesn't make me happy but I'm happy to have the privilege of exactly that kind of relationship. To be able to share people's journey with them is a profound privilege. And I could never have known that. I've continued to teach and write through the years as well. 
And all of those have to do with the basic notion, if I have found such and such valuable, why wouldn't I want to share it? Which is why I'm still teaching and still writing. I'm just about 82 and, and not, not uh, finished yet, I hope. And um, underneath all of that is the recognition that I've said several times already, there's something in me that responds when I'm tracking right with it. And there's something inside that protests. Our word psychopathology, symptoms we have, psyche, soul, pathos, suffering, logos, expression. So psychopathology is the expression of the suffering of the soul. So whether it's a relational discord or it's an intrapsychic in encounter such as anxiety or depression, or if it's a behavioral thing like an addiction or whatever, those are key indications that something inside is crying out for our recognition and our, you know, honest conversation with it. And when you do that, things begin to emerge and you begin to realize there's something here that I'm tracking that is important. And once I know that, I can't let go of that. You don't stop that. I feel like there's a, a lot of wisdom in what you just shared. And um, I mean, there's many pieces that came up to me, but I think what I hear you saying is that purpose is connected to the soul and the soul's desire, if I'm not mistaken, and that we've maybe culturally put a different label on it to whatever, right? To sort of make it sort of more mainstream or, or maybe it's just a, a disconnection from what it inherently is. But I appreciate the way that you laid that out. So I'm, I'm curious because I think, I think one of the challenges that men often have when they enter into the periods that you're talking about, right? Whether they're entered into the negredo or the dark night of the soul and they, you know, everything's sort of falling apart or they're looking for a sense of purpose or, you know, they're going through a transition in their life is that some of these things often are vague, maybe is not the right word, but they're, they're more ethereal than what our rational linear brains are used to as men. Uh -huh. And, and I think that that poses an inherent problem for most men, which is that they almost don't know the directions to the territory that they're entering into. And so there's, there's a deep frustration. And so I'm, I'm hoping that you can speak to how does a man, when he sort of felt this call or this pull, and he knows he's entering into maybe new or foreign territory, how does he begin to build a kind of compass to navigate what uh, or traverse what his soul might be asking him for? Uh, so I know I'm maybe asking you a very large question, and, and hopefully I'm formulating it correctly. No, it's a huge question, and, and that's exactly what I work with as a therapist. How do we help a person find their, their way through the forest? And, um, you know, let me just back off a little bit. When I returned from Zurich and I was seeing men and women, as I said initially, women, one thing everyone had in common, or they wouldn't have come to therapy, they might have an, an initial presenting issue, like a career, a relationship, whatever. But in everyone's case, and these were people all over 30, their understanding of self and world was not working very well for them. Their roadmap seemed not to be applicable to the territory in which they found themselves. And then you find yourself in those terrible in-betweens in life, you know, the opening sentence of 
Dante's Inferno was midway in life's journey. I found myself in a dark wood, having lost the way. That happens to people. It happens periodically. It's not just midlife, although that's often a critical transition. It happens whenever your old assumptions, marching orders, and um, shall we say map of the terrain has played out, no longer applicable, if it ever was. It's not in accord with your inner life. So first of all, I would want to validate that when these things happen, that's not something necessarily horrible, and it's not a failure on your part. It's because your psyche is moving on and is inviting you to travel with it rather than impose something upon it. You see, that's the big distinction. Because again, what are the, the illusion that, that we who are men often have, I certainly did, was it was all about figuring out what you wanted to do or thought you wanted to do, and then sort of doing it, executing the plan, arriving at your goals, and that's going to take care of everything. Well, plenty of evidence that doesn't always solve the problem, as we know. I, m I remember years ago reading one of the uh, original financiers, uh, an arbitrator who, who said, he had a personal fortune of $400 million, which is more than you and I make in a week when you think about it, right? And he says, the goal of life is to have the biggest pile at the end. And we were thinking, biggest pile? First of all, you're dead. And number two, pile of what? It could be sand. could be nice. Barbie dolls. It could be, be toys. What is this? You know, it was a pure quantification of the whole life journey. And he wound up in prison. I'm pretty sure he's deceased now, but you know, that's, that's a classic male trap, you know, set a goal, reach it and you've arrived, but we learn the hard way. There's no there there. Hmm. And that's because we, we grow somewhat absent spirited along the way. You know, we lose contact with something when what you're doing is right. There's some energy in you that's really supportive and present to you. You can mobilize that energy, and sometimes you have to, but to continue to mobilize it in the wrong directions always begins to lead to boredom, depression, self-medication, uh, burnout, and, and so forth. So that's another way in which we realize um, there is something inside of each of us that has an intentionality different from whatever internalized goals I have identified with, you see. I, I love what you're saying, because I think in many ways it's applicable for the, you know, the people that are listening. And I think we've all kind of felt that to some degree, you know, that when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when you're angry, that your body responds to that emotional state. I know for me, I can feel oftentimes when I start to get angry, this sort of tension in the chest or, or expansion and explosiveness in the chest and hands kind of get a little activated and you know, can feel that emotional manifestation within the physical body. So maybe just if you can speak to a, a little bit around why this is so relevant for men, you know, why this is the, because I guess I'm understanding that this is sort of some of the primary work that you do with men, right, is, is working somatically with them, helping them get into what their emotions are, where they're stored in the body, helping them release that. Why is this so relevant and important for men? Well, unlike what you just described with your awareness, I had none of that. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think I was like a lot of guys, but probably worse before I started. So if you ask me, 
oh, and what do you feel? I'd you know, roll my eyes or you know, try to find the, the closest door out of the room because I didn't want to go into emotional feelings. But once I got connected to my body, and this is what I see, you know, we see with men is, you know, most guys are emotionally unintelligent and it's not our fault, it's just how we got trained, but we don't have that emotional awareness. And so, we, you know, you ask a guy that and most guys in the beginning just don't know how to connect or at least how to articulate it. But most guys can connect to their bodies or can connect to their bodies much quicker. So we just work with men in very simple, easy ways to get them aware of their bodies and aware of what you just described, you know, that, you know, we could be sitting in a group and a guy is getting activated, maybe angry or sad. And you ask the man, what does he feel? And he says nothing in the beginning, Mm -hmm. but it's obvious to every guy sitting in the room that he's feeling things because he has all these body reactions. You know, his hands are moving, his face is red, eyes are getting cheery, but he has no awareness of his emotion over his body. So we slow him down. We get him to feel like one of the things that he that we see happening to his body, and then we get him to feel another thing. And then after a minute or two of having him feel his body, and then we ask him, you know, John, what do you feel emotionally? And then without thinking, he says, Oh, I feel sad. But you could keep asking him emotionally, what is he, what are you feeling? And he sort of goes into this freeze response, which is a you know, one of the survival responses. And he checks out and he feels like it's a performative thing that he's failing at, which, you know, I was there. So rather than have guys feel like they're just failing more and more, we sort of come in that back door of, all right, what do you feel in your body? And then what do you feel in your emotions? Can you speak a little bit? You know, I think there's a lot of talk around emotional intelligence. You know, this term gets thrown around quite a bit. And I think that for a lot of men, they have a a sort of vague understanding of like, okay, emotional intelligence, just being able to understand my emotions to some degree. But I'd like to get your take on how do you define emotional intelligence? And and then secondarily, how do we as men begin to develop a more comprehensive toolkit for us to be emotionally intelligent? Yeah, I remember, you know, this is decades ago, I met uh, Dan Goldman, the guy who wrote the book on it. Um, and he was actually a friend of one of my teachers, Ron Kurtz. That's how I met him. And so he was well aware of the somatic component. But because of their culture, we tend to interpret everything in a more cognitive way. So to start with, you know, we, we often say, how do I understand things more? And so we think, and I use that word deliberately, that being emotionally intelligent is more about understanding our emotions. And what I'll often say is the understanding, the real understanding sort of comes on the back end. What we need is the connection to our emotions, and, co- and connection to our emotions is a connection to our emotional experience. Mm. And so re- for me, our emotional intelligence is really being present with your emotions and then being able to articulate them, not from your head, not from understanding it. And this is what I hear from a lot of guys. You ask them about their emotions, and they start to describe it from a place of observation and judgment and analysis, but not from the place of experience. And I learned this, and this is what got me into all this men's work, because I had a, a partner that one evening, and I'll never forget this, sitting on the couch, she kept on saying, Owen, I don't feel you. And I kept on explaining my emotions. <laughs> and finally, finally, it hit me was, I'm just explaining it. I, and she was, she's being very patient, and I wasn't getting mad, but I was sort of arguing or debating that I, you know, I'm being emotional. This is why, these are the reasons why I'm being emotional. And finally, it hit me like, I'm not being emotional. I'm just being completely mental. 
Now, I understood that, but I couldn't at that moment drop down to my emotional experience and connect to my emotions so I could connect to her so she felt a real connection there. Now, it took all this work I started doing to really develop that skill set. I love the way you're articulating it because I think in many ways, like I, I remember being a fairly emotional child, you know, just being a, a, a very, I was a big feeler, you know, really, really big feeler. I would cry and I remember crying for a number of reasons as a kid uh, all the time. And as I got older, you know, played hockey, worked construction, did those things, that part of me got sort of pushed down over the years. And it's not that it went away and it's not that I wasn't present to it and it's not that I didn't have access to it. I just had never developed the tools to be in touch with it until pushing that shit down over the years just destroyed my life and I hit rock bottom and all, all this other stuff. And, you know, hence why man talks exists, what I do today. Um, but it, certainly I had a very similar experience as to what you're talking about in the beginning where after my sort of rock bottom and collapse, I started to realize that I was completely disconnected to how I was feeling. You know, that I had built a lot of my identity around emotional rejection, emotional avoidance. And I definitely have started to see that in a lot of men. You know, you, you talked about how you were sort of trained this way. And I'm curious to get your take on where do you believe that most of us men learn how to deal with our emotions? Like what's the input that we normally get? In one way, it's like we don't learn, um, but we always we do obviously learn. We learn not to be emotional. Uh, I think it's a function of a few things. And one of the things I realized several years ago was that you know we are meant to be emotional. You know now the research proves it as if we needed proof, but we need we need to be emotional. We need to be connected to other people, and we can't be connected to other people unless we're connected to ourselves. Now, one of the things that happened was you know we all left a tribe like ten thousand years ago. But what really pushed us further along this path of not being connected was, uh, I would say, 200 years ago when we left the farm for the factory and all these guys had to go to work. So our fathers or uncles and the, and the masculine part of the community were gone. And so their mothers stepped up and raised us. The teachers were women. And so what's happened over the last few hundred years is that um, our model and our experience and our training has been more a feminine model of emotionality, which works for women, and it's not bad, but it's not complete for men. Mm. And, and, and that model for men is not working for women. And so I think that's a, a, an integral part of what's missing is that we have not seen in this culture, you go to more aboriginal kinds of cultures, you do see it, but we have not seen in this Western culture for many years models of how to be embodied in your emotions, to be connected to your emotions and be connected to other people, men and women. Mm. But the power of your work and our work at every man is through all these different experiences from coaching to trainings to whatever, and with other men, men get to teach each other through their own authentic and vulnerable modeling. And it and it's like when you when we take the feminine and the cultural part, you know, the standard cultural part out of the the mix for men, you just put them in a a container with some simple agreements like confidentiality, pretty quickly they start teaching each other. And it's like we we start to pick it up where we left it off. And you know, one man becomes vulnerable or authentic, and that shows everyone that the space is safe. And then every guy starts to play with it or practice it. And over time, we start to learn these skills that we 
we never got to see and we start teaching each other because a lot of this kind of learning naturally is through observation. Mm. And through observation and experimentation, we actually start to embody these new or really old emotional skills. Yeah, I was reminded of a Terence McKenna quote where he, he said, there's an archaic revival happening. You know, we're entering into an archaic revival where the ways of the old, the things that we've become disconnected from and, and uh, uncoupled from in some ways that were really supportive for us as human beings, you know, in a lot of, a lot of ways that developed community and helped us understand one another and helped us understand ourselves are starting to reemerge back into the collective consciousness through whatever it is, your work, our work, psychedelics, that kind of stuff is all starting to become mainstream again, which is quite interesting. I want to back up to what you were talking about before, because I feel like that's very relevant and I don't want to, I don't want to skip past it, which is this distinction or differentiation between maybe the, the feminine or female manner of emotional processing versus the, a man's emotional processing. Um, because I agree 100%. I, I do think that culturally right now, we're in a time where the female-centric way of being able to feel has been very much pressed upon men, right? This notion of like, well, you know, you'd just be a better man if you, had, if you were more vulnerable, right? Your problems would just go away if you're just mm -hmm. more vulnerable. And I think that that's true to some degree, but I'm really curious to get your take on what is the distinction or the differentiation between those two spectrums. Well, I think one of the things that I'm sure you hear is that, you know, men need to be more feminine or get more in touch with the feminine side. And I understand where that's coming from. In its essence, I would agree with that. But I know a little for myself and I see with other guys, they bristle when they hear that. And so that sort of represents how we, we associate all emotions with the, with the feminine. And it's like the masculine, the assumption there doesn't have emotions or our model is not good. Well, in its essence, it is good. How it's been taught to us, it's limiting for men and women. And so I think what happens is that, you know, women are very expressive, which we love. We love that about women. But the way that they express is not our way of expressing. Mm -hmm. Not that we can't cry or all these other things, but, you know, from sitting in thousands of hours of men's groups and, and all these other things over, well, over 25 years with men uh, and then in my own practice is that, you know, as, and we teach therapists this because most therapists are women and, and they don't really get this sense of how do men really process their emotions? So one of the things that we often do is we need structure where a woman, and this is sort of the, the classic example, but I think there's a lot of truth to it, can just sit down and talk to any woman and pretty much go deep pretty quickly where a guy, we sit down and talk to a guy, and maybe you know we can go deep into sports or cars or computers or tech or whatever it might be, but there's this um, unspoken agreement that we don't go deep with you know our own experience, our own life. That said, you create um, an agreed upon structure like you do in our trainings and groups or even coaching, and most guys will start to open up because with structure we can go pretty deep and be consistent. So what I've found over the years is that women can go there quicker, but men will go deeper and often stay there longer. Mm. You know, once you know, a guy gets committed to his process and he has his forum or his method or his cohort to do it with, these guys will keep going for it way beyond what brought them in to do it. Because it's like, all right, I'm way beyond my pain. You know, I'm getting so much from this brotherhood, so much for this experience. 
And I, you know, I know you see this, Conrad. I want more and more. And and so a lot of what we are lacking around emotionality for men is really that deeper connection with other men. And once we have that, we have this sort of internal validation that not only is my emotions are fine, but I'm okay and I'm good enough. We did a study a couple of years ago uh, on men. And the biggest takeaway was that guys don't feel they're good enough. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't get that unless we're with other men. But when other men can honor another man, that's a huge breakthrough for that guy. Because in, in this other culture that we live in, we often don't have any honoring. And so an honor is a big thing for men. And women don't often understand that. Now, Alison Armstrong, uh, who works with men and women and had her on our podcast, she has said that women don't have honor. And of course, she pisses women off when she says that. But what she's saying is really that honor is a huge thing for men. And in some ways, that is a unique emotion for men. Would you just briefly, would you say that there's uh, much differentiation or distinction between honor and respect, or are those two things sort of interconnected? I think they're interconnected, but I think honor is unique. And honor ends up, I see it, as the antidote for shame. Mm. Yeah, say more about that. Yeah, so, you know, if you're, you know, coaching with me or, you know, you're in a group and you share about how you didn't perform well at some, you know, say, at work today and you, you love the presentation. And you have all the shame, you know, about that, but it's really tied into the shame going back to maybe school, your childhood, and you start to feel that. And, you know, I say, you know, Connor, wow. I mean, that took a lot of courage to show up at work and try something new. And yeah, you maybe you've, in your judgment, you failed at it. But really, I, you know, I really respect your courage to, one, show up, take that risk, be willing to fail, and then come in, into this group and share your experience in such a vulnerable way. And so you go from, you know, feeling shame and everyone else in the group sort of shakes their head and gives their comparable input. And you go, wow, shit. Yeah. I, you know, I feel good. Well, you know, I did a, something that was courageous. And we don't do that for each other as men unless we're in these contexts that we're talking about. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with that. And you know, you were talking about one of the distinctions between how we as men and, and sometimes women will process or experience our emotions is this notion of structure. And so I would love for you to just maybe touch on that a little bit in terms of, you know, I think you said confidentiality, which I think is a huge thing. Um, but what other components do you find are like, what other ingredients do you think are necessary for the structure to be in place for men to really have these, these types of depth-oriented conversations and relationships? We all need to feel emotionally safe. So when we work with tech companies and, and, and others, you know, we go in there, and one of the things that I first teach is we got to have emotional safety because if I don't feel safe, I will not be vulnerable or my vulnerability won't really be authentic. And so... I got to, you know, to to really be vulnerable, I got to be connected to my experience. I got to be connected to my sensations, my body sensations, my emotional sensations, that if I'm in a stress or survival or threat response, those are naturally going to be shut down or downregulated. And, I, you know, I'm going to be focused on survival. So my conscious mind might go, oh, I am safe in this room. No one's going to hit me. 
and no one's maybe even criticizing me, but because of my past trauma or stress, I feel unsafe. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be disconnected. And so that's the first thing is creating a structure that facilitates safety. And what we do with men is, you know, we have some simple protocols. And the first one is, you know, as we said, confidentiality, what happens in this space stays in this space. And what I see with men, and, and I was surprised, you know, when I started these groups years ago, you know, 99.9% of the time, it is honored. I wouldn't have thought it would have been that well honored, but it was, and it has been. So guys start to feel safe. And another is like, we need to know what the rules of engagement are. And so, you know, in our groups and with every man, you know, we have simple rules of engagements. Like, and guys, once they know what the rules are to play the game on that field, they start playing that game. And so, like in our groups, we have certain rounds, like, you know, we do the first check-in round, which is really, you know, just what's happening in the moment. So once guys understand that, they, they relax. They go, oh, oh, I can do that. I can do this. And they got a way to engage. And so what happens is when we understand what's expected of us and we, ha- we see other guys doing it, we go, oh, hell, I'll give it a try. I think I can do that. I think part of, I think, part of our ability as men to stay grounded and to create coherence, however, especially relationally, let's bring this back to the individual man, is to be able to receive criticism in our relationships. And I'm with you, brother. Like, I struggle with this sometimes. So what? where do you see men really struggling to receive criticism? And what's what's your journey been? Where, what do you lean on when you receive some criticism within your relationship? And let's just kind of go down this path because I feel like it's it's a big thing for a lot of men who are in in relationships and they're like, yes, I'm good until she criticizes me in some capacity or I'm good, but she criticizes me a lot and I just, I can't deal with it. You know, I don't know how to how to deal with it. it wears me down. You know, I hear men talking about this all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give you the the floor there to riff on that. Man, Shay and I started watching this show, Love is Blind. Us too. I want to do a video on it. It's freaking <laughs> yes. amazing. <laughs> please, please. It's terrible. It's uncomfortable. Season two. Yeah. I didn't watch season one, but uh, we've been checking out season season two. And it's a reminder of like the fundamental flaws that so many of us are given in dealing with relationships and yeah, receiving criticism, you know, like watching this one guy on the show freeze up when the woman on the other side of the wall asks him like, Hey, are you like dating multiple women? Like I'm a little bit confused here. He freezes up. He goes into damage control. He's like, why are you even asking that question? Like, and then freaks out, leaves the room, tries to leave the show. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure they have therapists on the show and they convinced him to stay. And as immature as that guy in particular is, I see so much of myself in him, right? Like so much of me in my 20s, as soon as there was any hint of criticism from a a woman that I was dating, I would lash out. I would lash out in some way. I would try to confuse her or dominate her or kick her out of the house or I wasn't able to just sit and try to understand what it is that she she was trying to say. So I think modern men lean two ways when they're receiving criticism from, from a partner. They roll over on their own needs and they just say yes and okay and I'm sorry. These like really shallow I'm sorry's. I'll do better next time. They, they go the nice guy route. Or 
they uh, they go some version of that sort of counterattack, stab and run <laughs> thing that I used to do, right? In both cases, both people aren't heard. Nothing gets resolved. There's a blow up and it either ends the relationship or it just sort of gets swept under the rug. And um, yeah, there, there's just, you just pile those things on top of each other. You end up with a big shit pile mm-hmm. uh, to try to deal with in your relationship. And, and that's harder deal to deal with than the smaller conversations that you don't know how to have. So where I've learned to lean is, first of all, learn about nice guy syndrome. Learn about saying yes when you mean no. And learn how to assert yourself and say like, yeah, you know, like this is something that I want, something that's important to me. Learn how to ask for what you want. Learn how, learn how to ask for affection. That's a big one. And learn how to sort of set boundaries and say like, hey, this is, this is something that I want. This is something that I don't want. This is something that hurts my feelings. And, and then stand your ground in that and, and listen to the other person. So that's the nice guy piece. And then the, the, the jerky stab and run side is learn to sit in the fire and not die because it's not going to kill you and actually try to understand the other person rather than worrying about you and and how you're being misrepresented or misunderstood that's always been my things like oh you're well you're not you're misunderstanding me mm. well i'm misunderstanding her as well in that moment <laughs> like I usually jump to, you're not, mis- you're not understanding me like pretty quick. You know, mm. it's not like I've repeated back to her what she said and like really tried to get it. I'm jumping to my own conclusions. So learning what is holding space. I used to think that wasn't a thing. Learning to sit and hold space and listen to someone and try to understand what's behind their words. What, what are they feeling behind what they're saying to me? What's really important to them? How does this even tie back to their childhood? You know, this unmet need that they're bringing to me that maybe I don't want to feel responsible for, but this is what it means to be in relationship. So yeah, understanding nice guy stuff and, and how to assert yourself and also understanding how to hold space and just shut up, just be quiet and, and, and practice being curious and listening to the other person rather than trying to argue your point or make yourself feel understood. And part of that comes from getting secure enough in yourself that like you feel like you understand you, mm-hmm. you know, you, I get me, I love me. And so like when someone's bringing some heat, I'm not just like tipped over like a, like I was on like a balancing on a ledge here, you know, I'm just like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, you've got, you got, you got a bone to pick with me. Okay. Let's, let's hear it. You know, that's the king. Like it doesn't get tipped off his throne when somebody throws a, throws a little twig at him. Right. So that's, that's where I lean. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Really, really well said. I mean, I think it's interesting because where and when we receive criticism as men, I feel is often a good place for us to implement tools of regulation, right? Like that's in those moments where we have to regulate our nervous system, mm-hmm. where we have to tune into like, oh, I want to punch a hole in the wall or, oh, I want to run away or I want to shut down or I don't want to talk to this person now for a few days. And so I find that in those moments, that's where we get to practice what we talk about in terms of staying grounded and staying regulated and yeah, I mean, my wife has a lot of fire, you know, and in the beginning I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> what is going, you know? And so, and so I had to learn how to stay grounded and sometimes receive criticism and, and then also to be able to like know how to work with it or like, you know, tussle with it a little bit and be like, oh, you're really spicy right now. Hey, like, uh-huh. 
You know, I was like, yeah. that's a lot of, you're bringing a lot of heat my way. Like, you, you want a barbecue? <laughs> like, what's going on? You know? And, and, and so I have, you know, I kind of like adopted this modality of like being able to like tussle with her energy when she's in that space and rather than personalizing it. And I don't always get it right by any means, but I, I am this was in the same boat where for me growing up, criticism led to, to real shaming you know, and sometimes verbal or, or emotional abuse and on the odd occasion, physical abuse, you know? And so I always saw criticism as like a threat and it was deeply shameful. And so I'm curious, like, is your, I, I think in your words, I think you used a, a sort of avoidance of criticism, but it, has your avoidance in, of criticism in the past had an origin? Like, is there a place that it came from in your, in your upbringing? Oh yeah. 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 I had a lot of energy as a young guy and didn't know where to put it. And my parents didn't know how to emotionally regulate. And so they didn't know how to teach myself and my brother to emotionally regulate. My brother is highly emotional. So you can imagine what happened with him. He was like, it constantly on medication for ADHD, put in institutions, ended up in jail because it was just lashing out at the world. And then in rehab, and I followed similar similar path. We we were actually in rehab at the same time, and yeah, I really do see that lack of emotional regulation as as being the cause. And so I felt like I was constantly criticized as a as a kid for my behavior, for the things that I was saying, uh, for how I was showing up in school, for how I was showing up at home. But mostly at home, I was like felt my my memory is that I was just like constantly in trouble and in contracts for my behavior, trying to control my behavior, which is why I'm so freedom oriented now as an adult. <laughs> so I spent my childhood in contracts and drugged up. So it's similar origins for me is like, if there's anything wrong with my behavior or how I'm coming across to Shalina, it's a flashback to my childhood about, you know, Ben's not performing properly. So yeah, same thing. And so for you early on in your relationship, what did, with Vienna, what did you, what was your coping mechanism that you would do? Would you like flee or would you fight back or? I, I escalated. Escalated. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would escalate. So I would like, at first I was just, I was confused. So it was a little bit of freezing, you know, cause uh-huh. I was like, wait, how come you're coming at me like so intensely right now? I don't understand what, like there's, there was a huge discrepancy for me of the, what I was receiving and what had happened, Mm -hmm. you know, like I would not rinse a fork and put it in the dishwasher. And that would, that was like nuclear on her end, you know? And I was like, what is this, you know? And so at first, the first little while it was just freezing and trying to figure out like what the fuck is going on. And then after that was, I would go straight into combating you know, and that's what my stepdad and I would do, right? So he he had a very short temper, but he was my primary caregiver. And so he and I would get in these, like, we would lock horns and get into these battles and it would just escalate, you know, and soon he and I would be yelling at, at one another. And then, you know, occasionally that led to physical violence. Right. And so with her, we would get into like these very sort of intense engagements in the beginning where I was just like, I don't understand what you're so pissed off about. Like, try and explain this to me. Mm -hmm. And of course, I would go into this like rationalization of 
explain yourself, you know, yeah. like, how does this make any sense? <laughs> which, which in hindsight was like the last thing that I should have done, you know, or I would try and defend myself like, or, or, or diminish her experience, you know, like, how are you so upset about an unwashed fork? You know, mm-hmm. like what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those are the things that I would, that I would go to. Mm-hmm. Question though, mm-hmm. what's better in terms of an outcome, the total dissociation being like, I don't like the playing it cool. Like, I don't know, babe, like, I don't know what you're freaking out about versus like engaging with her about it and having a little bit of a tussle. Oh, engaging. I found like, yeah, I had to engage to understand what helped me also was like seeing her in that conflict cycle with her parents and actually like objectively viewing it, but definitely Mm -hmm. engaging. What about you? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I mean, th- th- there's been plenty of times where I try to check out and I get kind of dismissive of her if I'm if I'm like if I can't rationalize like what this is about. I'm like, I don't know, babe. Like, you're gonna have to deal with that on your own. I'm just I'm t- I'm just not gonna be a part of this uh, this argument right now. Bye. Dismissive abandonment, like that. She would fume. Uh, she wouldn't continue to come at me, but internally, it was that was way more damaging for her than if I if I just got into the muck with her and got unrealistic and emotional and had a bit of a tussle because mm-hmm. then we could like we could have a little a little bang and then afterwards be, sit and talk and do the repair which is really important you can't just have the bang and then and then not have the repair and of course the best case scenario is is to do neither of those things like don't redline myself don't check out completely but like turn towards her open my chest and like really like engage with her about the thing until I've reached my limit or we reach until I'm sensing we're reaching our limit and we need some time and then mm-hmm. put her, take her to a close. We had one when we were in Mexico while I was driving and we started getting into it. Worst time. And, and I was like defending myself from the side, you know, but at, while also trying to hear her, you know, but like I was like, this is not, <laughs> this is not going well. Cause I can't turn towards her and just like, listen, I'm like trying not to crash. So I, I had to shut it down. And then we, we brought it back up 24 hours later. So learning those things was helpful because what my parents used to do was pull the car over and kick me out of the car. Wow. That's what used to happen when, when things got hot in the car, it was like, get out of the car. They just kick us out wherever we were. If it was the winter, it didn't matter. We were, we were kicked out. And that's a place that my unconscious self would go with my wife if I was totally unhinged. I'm curious, have you found that engaging in the tussle, like engaging in the, in the conflict to some degree, like what's that done for your relationship to your anger? Because I think that for a lot of men, they avoid the conflict. They avoid the tussle with their partner because they're afraid of their own anger. You know, they're afraid mm-hmm. of losing it or not being able to control themselves in some capacity. So I'm curious on that. Yeah, good question. So you know this even better than I do that that what we reject and repress controls us from behind. So that total avoidance of anger means that your anger is going to be more and more of an estranged enemy where you're putting it in your mind that when it does come up, it will control you because you don't understand its moves. You don't understand how to control it. And so in shadow work, we practice getting into anger. And this is one of the things that I saw transform guys when I first joined uh, my first men's group is guys just getting into the angry anger space together, sometimes screaming in each other's faces, sometimes pressing into each other and, and getting a little bit wrestly when, when there's some anger coming through a guy. 
you know, we hold some space and he pushes into it and just some screaming. And then he stands there and feels it in his body and he feels anger in a safe space and he learns to build a relationship with it so he can modulate it. You know, actors are very good at this. You know, they can just embody joy and then they can embody anger. And there's, I think there's something, something there for all of us to learn, right? Is to, is to be able to embody this stuff in a place where we're able to sort of steer a little bit. And so I think when I'm at my best and she's bringing some heat and it is activating some stuff in me, I'm able to sit there or stand there and say, you know what, this, this does make me angry. I feel angry because I feel like this is about this, but it's really about this, or I feel misunderstood, or I worked really hard over here and I feel, I feel not valued when you bring this up at this particular time, you know? And while saying that, being mindful that I am practicing embodying my anger with her and that like consciously, I'm, uh, my consciousness is still there trying to steer and the more I practice that, the more I'm able to actually bring that in the relationship and express authentically without punching holes in the walls. And I think that's what every guy wants. He wants to be able to embody his anger and, and um, use it in a healthy way because we know that we need our anger sometimes. It's there for a reason. It's not, it's not to just be set aside on a shelf because there may be a day truly where we need to say no. And we need to stand up for ourselves, you know, and that may be in our relationship or politically or or what have you. So practice. Let's maybe transition a little bit to this, the notion of the integrated masculine, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think, you know, that, that term just integrated or integrate, you know, you need to integrate that. I think that gets thrown around a lot. And Mm -hmm. I would love for you to just maybe put some parameters around what is the integrated masculine? What does it look like? And what are some of the pathways towards the integrated masculine? Yeah. When I talk about the integrated masculine, all I'm really saying is that you've cultivated the great masculine tool, which is awareness and consciousness, you know, with the great feminine tool, which is sensitivity, intuition, right? Within. And so when we've cultivated those tools within ourselves, we've now sort of maximized, I guess, although we never get there, we've maximized our capacity to be uber sensitive, uber intuitive, uber aware, uber feeling, let's say, with great awareness. And I'm really trying to talk about these things, although they sound very woo-woo, I'm really trying to talk about them in very practical terms. Your awareness, you know, just the idea of a heartache or a heart flutter or anxiety. So the capacity to bring your awareness to your heart and feel the flutter in your heart and just stay with that, right? Stay with the flutter in your heart is, is a very profound skill that I don't think we've acknowledged, celebrated. Women know, women know, your mm-hmm. woman probably knows, but, but, but we don't know what that, the ROI is. So mm. the integration I mean, there's deeper layers of it. I'll give one more layer and then I'd love your thoughts on this, but I think one more layer is to really journey into your internal feminine, which I define in the book as your emotional body, your thought processes, anything that's moving and constantly changing in the lexicon that I use is the feminine, right? Anything that is still and unchanging and, you know, sort of the essence of you 
doesn't change. So your capacity to feel both of those things at the same time and be with both of those things at the same time creates this internal, creates an internal integration. And so your capacity to be with your own emotional body, with your own yearning heart, with your own neediness, with your own insecurities from a place of very deep awareness and sensitivity is an integration practice. And so what I'd like guys to get out of this is that, look, these are things that actually can be, that sound harder than they are once you really break them down into a practice, once you really get on the mat with them. I appreciate that distinction and just sort of that direction for, for guys. You know, I think, I think the really important piece of what you were saying is, is describing the ROI, you know, cause it can sound nebulous sometimes yeah. when you hear these things, it's like, oh, I need to be more aware. It's like, well, well, you know, I think about myself 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And, it, you know, if I heard that, I've been like, well, why? <laughs> you know, like it's, it's almost like the child in me or the teenager in me would have been like, well, why, why would I do that? Mm. And in some ways it's like, well, what do you, what, A, what do you have to lose? And B, what are you if you're not aware? You know, you're, you're unconscious, you're acting unconsciously. Yeah. And yeah. so is that free? Are you a free man when you're acting unconsciously? Probably not. No. Right. You're, you're acting from your anger, from your anxiety, from your fears, from your worries, you're not acting from grounded choice. And so that's a little bit about how I've always tried to a- approach that conversation. I don't know if that gives any more context for the listener, but can you maybe just say anything else about, I think you said awareness is the ultimate masculine tool or some version of that. I did want to ask why, but I would love for you to just expand on awareness as the ultimate masculine tool. Yeah. Well, let's start with the, the ROI piece first, because just, you know, just to give these guys a little meat on the bone, virtually every complaint that your feminine partner has about you, when you boil it down, has something to do with your lack of awareness. Leaving the toilet seat up is a lack of awareness, not feeling me, a lack of awareness, not, you know, being aware of time and space, lack of awareness. And if you start to break down where the disconnect happens in relationships, almost always there is a lack of awareness that she is sensing in you that is painful to her. And so the more aware you can get, both body awareness and you know mind awareness, the more trustable you are to your feminine partner, which translates into your business, into your clients, into, you know, every, you know, I think this, and I know you know this, right? But the, the, the great, you know, tragedy, you know, for men is that they don't, no one's ever really taught them that strategy. So that's the ROI piece. Hopefully that, you know, that inspires a couple guys to get on the mat. The core masculine, if we break up just humanity, our, our humanity into our masculine, which is the ever-changing, ever, I mean, the unchanging, ever-expanding consciousness field of awareness that we are at all times. It never changes. Consciousness never changes. Kind of Buddhism 101, right? So consciousness just is. Everything else is changing. Our thoughts, our bodies, our emotions, the world, everything else is changing. So that everything else is the feminine. The tool of consciousness is awareness. I'm aware that I'm having this conversation with you. I'm aware I'm alive. I'm aware that there's an ocean outside. I'm aware. And so 
the reason why it's actually sexy awareness is because it is an instrument that demonstrates a connection to consciousness, right? And so one of the great masculine gifts in relationship is to be aware of the depth of feeling that your partner has at any moment. You know, that occurs to her as a very deep form of love. Basically, you're just putting your awareness and your sensitivity on her, on her, not on your thoughts, not on your desires, not on your agenda. So, and feeling is the tool of the feminine, our feminine, mm. her feminine, the feminine. One of the things that I wanted to just backtrack on was the notion, because, you know, you're talking about how awareness and consciousness is, is the tool being able to deepen that awareness, being able to deepen that consciousness into the language that I would use, like the charge in the body, this, you mm -hmm. know, the direct felt experience, mm -hmm. you know, what, what we're actually experiencing physically, emotionally, mentally. It's interesting because we've almost been sold this notion that the rational mind, that the thoughts that we have and the consumption of knowledge that we have all become addicted to is somehow masculine in its nature. And so there's, I, I see a lot of guys going on this journey of, well, if I can just accumulate enough information and if I can learn how to think sharp enough, then I'll be very masculine. Have yeah. you, have you witnessed that? And, and what yeah. do you, what do you, what would you say about that? Yeah. So, so here's the great, and this is the lesson that I've learned in my own life, right? I, cause I am a junkie of practice, <laughs> you know, information teachers, you know, for many years. What I realized is that all of that information just got layered on my patterns, right? And it just became another strategy for working out my childhood patterns, quite frankly, my, my need to be known, my need to be acknowledged, my need to be seen, right? I, I, a lot of people come to my work wanting to master these techniques so that they'll be more lovable or more sexy or more, right? That is still taking something and then layering layering on top of basic uh, of your wounds of your childhood wounds which we all have right so information and strategy and skill without awareness ultimately very unconsciously and very insidiously become part of our pattern you know continuation of pattern so the the ways to move out of pattern and pattern tends to happen in the mind right it's a thought loop you know, same thought, same fear, same da, 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 da. The way to move out of that is to drop into the deeper space, which is the part of you that is aware of the pattern, witnessing the pattern, surrounding the pattern, and dropping into the space from which all experience emerges is a deep, you know, deep, monks have been practicing this in caves for thousands of years, but it is the deep masculine practice doesn't actually need it. Here's the great thing. The combination of being fully aware and fully sensitive, and if the resting in those spaces, like feeling the moment fully and having full awareness on it is almost needless. We don't need anything when we're in that space of great expansiveness or great sensitivity or great love, great love, 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 right? right? And so we don't need anything. So to answer your question, that space of no need is the antidote to trying to, trying different strategies to keep winning. Not that we, we're human, we have needs, right? But 
we give our needs way too much fucking credit and way too much space and way too much airtime. Yeah, it's it's I love the the use of patterns in your in your answer because I think you know we we get caught in those. And I remember having um a meditation teacher give me the line to meditate on who is it that's aware I'm thinking, right? Yeah. Who is it that's aware I'm thinking? And uh, that was such a perplex at first I was like, what is it? like what the hell does that even mean? But then to to literally be in the experience of of witnessing who's thinking and to have that experience to separate a little bit, to create a little bit of space from the thoughts, from the patterns that are running constantly, from the repetition of thoughts that we think over and over and over again, and to let some of those things go, freeze up some space, you know, freeze, freeze us a little bit from the need to reconcile that pattern, to act from that pattern, to uh, replay that pattern uh, so there, there is a, a quality of freedom, I think, in what you're describing. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's, it's the only true, true freedom. Mm. All other freedom is transitory, right? Uh-huh. And the masculine basically designs their life to attain freedom. I'm going to make yeah. enough money so that I can be free. I'm going <laughs> to have the kind of sex I want to have so I will feel free. I, I'm going to finish. I'm going to get rid of all the things that are burdening me so then I can feel free. And the great I mean, a tragedy in that is that we still think that those, I'm going to travel the world and do ayahuasca because I'm, I'm going to be free. The tragedy is we're still bound by pattern and thought that we didn't necessarily ask for, came from our parents, came from our upbringing, came from society. So the true freedom is what you're describing, right? To be, to rest in that space of the great I am. And then what makes it, what makes it a, a relational or sexual gift is to transmit that great I am through the body. And it's a skill that can be learned. It can absolutely be learned, just like meditation. I'm not too sure it was, if it was you or, or someone else that I heard talk about it, but the, the idea that we are ancestors to someone else and we will be ancestors to, to generations to come. And I want to get your take on what does it look like for us based on this moment, based on the times that we're in, for us to be generative ancestors that can, you know, nourish the generations to come. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big... No, no, there's, there's a, it's, it's more like the flood that comes in. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're like, there's a, there's a book and a movie that I have that I just want to put out there, yeah. Um, I think it probably we could thread our whole conversation into this. Hmm. Uh, to become an ancestor or an elder who is an ancestor in trading means to become somebody fluent in the language of grief. You know, I talked about the apprenticeship with sorrow. In the old language of apprenticing, you undertook a prolonged study of a craft, whether that's stonework or masonry or carpentry or weaving. And you studied it for years, sometimes a decade or two. And at the end of that long devotional practice, you would be declared a master, a master craftsman. In the apprenticeship with sorrow, that long study, the long period of working with grief and learning its contours and its textures and its style and its rhythm and its language doesn't lead to mastery. The long apprenticeship leads to elderhood. And an elder is someone who does not turn away from the sorrows of the world. And in fact, looks into the eyes, particularly of the young ones, to see whether that sorrow 
is coming through those eyes and they recognize that and they speak to that. And they say, I see you and I see what you're carrying and they'll want you to tell me. An elder is someone who is willing to coax the grief of the young ones out into the world. So a lot of the grief that the young ones are carrying have no place to be deposited, no place to be heard. So it often leads to suicide or to, you know, some other form of coping. So what I'm asking for is for our, ourselves to become fluent enough in those skill sets. Because grief is not just an emotion, it's also a core human faculty. It's a core skill. And to become skillful in that really is what preserves the, the world, preserves the culture. I'll tell you one quick story from... Um, for many years, 17 years or so, I led a program called Men of Spirit, which was a men's initiation project that took men through a year-long process of ripening them into become participants in the care of the, of the community. And at the end of 17 years, I needed to pass it on, so I did a training for several years. And one of the last things we did was a ritual. And I asked um, the men who were in training with me, I said, we're going to drum for a while, and what I want you to do is I want you to dance a Thanksgiving dance to the ancestors. And there were some moans and groans about that because some of them did not have very positive ancestors. I said, well, at least start with the gratitude that you have this body. And no matter how difficult and fraught the relationship was with your direct ancestors, they gave you this body. Dance for that. I said, but at some point, the drumming is going to stop. When the drumming stops, I want you to lay down on the ground and await further instructions. Now, a little preamble to this story. When we began the Men of Spirit project, we said this is a 200-year project. We know, without a shadow of a doubt, that we will not see the fruition of this dream in our lifetimes. But we are planting that seed so that maybe in 200 years, the young boys standing on this mountain, or maybe in other mountains, will know their belonging from the very beginning. They will know a return to a living village. They will find salmon swimming in the streams again, and the world will still be beautiful. That is what we do while we're doing this project. We're starting this dream sequence. So we started the drumming, and the men started to dance, and over 40, 45 minutes, the, the dancing got quite animated. It was beautiful. We stopped the drumming. The men laid down on the ground, and I walked out amongst them. I said, now, imagine that our dream has come true. We are 200 years in the future, and the young ones are up on the surface of this land. We are the ancestors. Now, we are the ones deep in the ground. Our names have been utterly forgotten, but they are now depending upon our prayers. Send, send them an arrow of love. Send them your commitment that you will stand with them, that you will bless them, that you will hold them, that you will take them wherever they have to go. They will not be alone. Bless them, bless them, bless them. And the men began, men began shooting these arrows of love up to the, we could feel that the young ones were up there and we were the ones deep underground. We were the ones holding this up. And it was all dependent upon whether or not we could do this with full devotion. And we did this for hours. The drumming stopped and the arrows kept flying. They didn't want to stop blessing these young men standing on top. And when we ended, we looked at each other, we recognized we were, we did a time travel, we were the ancestors. We were no longer in this world. 
we were under the world and we were throughout the world and we were doing our jobs. That's what's required of us right now, to bless those who are looking to us. Generate the, even if there are the generations who haven't taken shape yet, we have to bless them by our commitment to the future. But we, there won't be one unless our devotion falls into the world and we send arrows of love over and over again to the generations that might just still come. That felt, I mean, it just felt nourishing to hear and feel. And yeah, I don't have many words for that. So I feel like I'll let that be. Thank you. Thank you.